The United States has been at war in Afghanistan for 19 years. Now, U.S. troops may finally be leaving for good. Today, the U.S. military said it completed one of the most significant drawdowns of the conflict. There are now just 2,500 American troops in Afghanistan. By the end of the year, that number could be zero. Our colleague Suna Rasmussen covers Afghanistan. He also lived there for three years. And late last year, he went back to Kabul, the capital, to take the city's temperature ahead of the U.S. departure. How has Kabul changed over the past 20 years of U.S. involvement? It's a dramatically different city from what it was back in, in 2001. You know, you can find a growing middle class. You'll find coffee shops that are designed similarly to coffee shops in Brooklyn or in East London where I live. Same kind of Scandinavian-style furniture and third-wave coffee. But it's also just a, a busy South Asian city with a lot of traffic. There's a lot of mosques in the city, so the traffic kind of blends in with the call to prayer from the mosques. And then once in a while, and this is what sets Kabul apart from other South Asian cities, is you'll hear a large explosion or a burst of gunfire. Because it still is a a city that's at war. It's not just Kabul that's changed. Across much of the country, the U.S. presence has dramatically reshaped people's lives. For one entrepreneur, it gave him the opportunity to build a business empire. For a human rights activist, it gave her access to the halls of power that she'd never had before. And for a young Taliban fighter, it gave him a cause he was willing to die for. Now that the U.S. is leaving, their lives could be reshaped all over again. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Ryan Knudsen. It's Friday, January 15th. Coming up on the show, three Afghans on what the U.S. withdrawal means for them and their country. Don't you wish your life came with a warning app? That dog does not want to be petted. Well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but prediabetes does. Take the one-minute test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. Suna went back to Kabul in October of last year. He wanted to understand how the U.S. invasion had changed people's lives. And one of the people he wanted to talk to was Fahim Hashimi. He says Fahim built one of Afghanistan's most successful businesses on the back of the U.S. presence. Fahim Hashimi is the founder and CEO of a large Afghan media conglomerate that has a TV station called One TV. He's also one of the country's wealthiest young people. He sounds like a mogul. He is a mogul, yeah. He's kind of the symbol of the nouveau riche in Afghanistan. Fahim's a mogul now, but before the U.S. invasion in 2001, he was just another teenager getting in trouble with the Taliban. This was in the 90s, when the Taliban ruled the country. Under their rules, you know, they forced you to grow beard. Unfortunately, I did not grow much beard. So that was one of the things which put me in trouble normally. They said, why didn't you grow beard? I said, I couldn't. On the bottom of his face, Fahim didn't have enough hair. 
On the top, he had too much. As a teenager, I loved growing the hair. You know, I got to get uh, captured with my long hair a few times. Then they say, this is, uh, this is not allowed, and this is Western hair. So, you know, had to, you know, lose it a few times. But I was able to manage a life, uh, going to a medical school, then, of course, attending my small pharmacy with my father. We didn't know internet. We had not seen the rest of the world. And, this and the is, world came to you. Yeah, the world came to us. In October of 2001, a month after the attacks on 9-11, the U.S. invaded Afghanistan. Good afternoon. On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes against al-Qaeda terrorist training camps and military installations of the Taliban regime in Afghanistan. I remember the airstrikes, and I remember our, you know, muddy house uh, shaking at night uh, when they started bombarding the Taliban bases. And I also remember the, the Taliban running away that night uh, with all the sound coming from the tanks, uh, you know, uh, moving out of Kabul. And in the morning when I woke up, you know, I was able to get on my bike and, you know, ride around the city uh, more freely. I was able to shave, you know, right away. And, you know, of course, it was not the, the best day to see a lot of dead bodies around Kabul, but it was the best day uh, where, you know, we totally felt different. We felt free. Very soon, you started hearing the voice of music. And, you know, so it was a different environment. It was a different country. And so that uh, was the beginning of a new era for us. Fahim's path from med student to mogul started with the invasion. He knew English and got a job as a translator for U.S. forces. And soon, he was doing a lot more for the U.S. military. I knew, you know, they purchased a lot of goods from the Afghan economy and, and from the local economy. So I started thinking about going out and, you know, bidding on some contracts and leaving what I was doing. So, you know. And, what was your first contract? Uh, my first contract was a, a bedsheet contract for $600. The U.S. was making a lot of these kinds of contracts at the time, pouring money into Afghanistan's stagnant economy. And Fahim won more and more of these deals to supply shoes, uniforms, stationery, transportation. Then became a, uh, um, I can't say a tier one, but uh, one of the biggest uh, U.S. government contractors in, in the country. He expanded into other businesses like mining, construction, and media. He founded a TV station called One TV with shows that catered to the new Afghanistan. We had uh, special programming for women, one of them named The Mask. And it uh, covered women who were tortured and who were living in the safe houses in order to provide a voice for them. The set of The Mask looks a little bit like the Maury Povich show. The host and the guests sit opposite each other in armchairs. Except here, the guest wears a mask that completely obscures her face. We were able to put a woman on TV wearing a mask, talking about what they had gone through, naming commanders, naming warlords, naming people who actually tortured them. Women who were tortured for the first time raised their voices and we provided this platform for them. Before the invasion, all of this would have been impossible. Fahim says under the Taliban, he wouldn't have been able to raise money for a TV station, 
let alone air a show like The Mask. But the U.S. invasion had changed things for women, too. With the Taliban out of power, they were reclaiming a place in public life that they hadn't had in a generation. Women weren't just on TV, they were in schools and offices and out on the street wearing headscarves. Burkas were no longer required by law. The promise of more opportunity was a big reason a woman named Shahrazad Akbar and her family came back to Afghanistan. Yeah, Shahrazad Akbar, she is the chairperson for Afghanistan's Independent Human Rights Commission. I'm chairperson for Afghanistan Independent Human Rights Commission. It's the largest and, and most powerful human rights organization in the country. Of course, it's part of the mandate of the commission to uphold human rights of all Afghans, regardless of where they live, Taliban-controlled, government-controlled areas. She's in her early 30s, extremely smart, and sort of a nimble operator as well. She's very well regarded by all sides, maybe except the people who find her irritating because she criticizes their human rights records. That being the Taliban? That is the Taliban, but it's certainly also Afghan government officials or certain strong men in the provinces. When she was a girl, after the Taliban took power, Shahrazad's family fled Afghanistan for Pakistan. We couldn't live under the Taliban. There were no schools for girls. So the fact that we couldn't basically, as girls, have a public life uh, was the key reason for my parents to move to Pakistan. And we lived in Pakistan till February 2002. 2002. And what, what made your family come back to Afghanistan? Uh, 9-11 and then the fall of Taliban. My parents, both of them actually, couldn't bear to be away from Afghanistan anyway. So as soon as we felt like there's space for us to live and to work and to learn, they returned. And because she knew English, Shahrazad got jobs as a translator and a reporter. But like with Fahim, it was just a stepping stone. Eventually, she became part of the new Afghan government, working on the National Security Council. And that's how she found herself sitting across the table from the Taliban. By 2019, the U.S. was negotiating its exit from Afghanistan, and so the Afghan government held talks with Taliban leaders. These weren't peace talks, but the goal was to start working out what the country's future without the Americans could look like. Shahrazad was part of those talks, which took place in Doha. I think it was also good for the Taliban to see the diversity, to engage with women. Uh, I think Taliban believe, really believe that women are less than men. Like, they're lesser beings. And so engaging with women who are intelligent and articulate and who would challenge them and who would ask questions and who would um, object to their views and narrative, uh, that must have been interesting for them. At the time, Shahzad had uh, just given birth to her son, and she brought both her son and her husband to the consultations in, in uh, Doha. I mean, it's unusual enough to have an Afghan woman at the table for consultations like that. But it's completely unheard of that her husband is on the sideline and is just sitting there accompanying her to take care of the child. I was, and this was also kind of made some people feel strange, you know, awkward. Like, how can he be cool with this, that his wife is part of the delegation and he's not, he's just here to take care of the baby. And um, it was emotional for both of us. It mattered to both of us and to bring our child to this event because... Of course, as parents, we want something better than this for our child. We don't want him to grow up in an Afghanistan that's shattered by conflict. Even when I was pregnant, we would joke and we would say, oh, should we name him Peace or something like that? Because maybe, inshallah, once he, he's born, this will be the beginning of a path 
towards peace in Afghanistan. So it was very emotional to have him there. And it really reminded me about the urgency of ending this war. Those talks wrapped in July of 2019. And then, seven months later, the U.S. government announced the results of its own talks with the Taliban. The U.S. had struck a deal, one that called for a complete withdrawal of U.S. troops from the country by the spring of 2021. The United States and the Taliban have signed an historic agreement aimed at ending 18 years of war in Afghanistan. Today, we're realistic. We are seizing the best opportunity for peace in a generation built on the hard work of our soldiers, diplomats, businessmen, aid workers, friends, and the Afghans themselves. Under the deal, the Taliban agreed to engage in peace talks with the Afghan government and keep terrorists out of the country. If it met those conditions, the U.S. pledged to leave. This force that had reshaped the country, allowed Afghans to build businesses and women to hold positions of power, would be gone for good. When you talk to people in Afghanistan about the withdrawal, what did they say? On my last day in Kabul, I had lunch with a friend who's an Afghan woman, and she kind of scolded me. She said, are you going to write one of those stories that Western journalists always write about war and fear and collapse? Why don't you write a story about hope? And I said, look, I'd love to write that story about hope, but... I haven't found a single person that could tell me anything hopeful. Every single person I met was fearful or anxious, angry, except for the Taliban fighters I spoke to. They were hopeful. But that was not the kind of hope that she was talking about, obviously. So the atmosphere in Afghanistan was probably as tense and anxious as I've, as I've ever experienced it. Coming up... The futures that Fahim, Shahrazad, and one Taliban fighter imagine for Afghanistan. Don't you wish your life came with a warning app? That dog does not want to be petted. <laughs> well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but prediabetes does. Take the one-minute test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. Many Afghans Suna spoke to are anxious about a U.S. withdrawal. They worry it could allow the Taliban to take back power, whether through political means or by force. The Taliban have been growing stronger over the past half a decade. They have a lot of territory around the country. They continue to be able to recruit fighters. And I think there's a real fear in Afghanistan that once the U.S. withdraws and they take the capability, their air capabilities especially with them, the Taliban will, if not try and take Kabul, then take provincial capitals, or they'll simply get so much political influence that they can roll back some of the freedoms that Afghanistan has won over the past 20 years. You said earlier that everybody in Afghanistan you spoke with is worried and scared about the country's future, except those in the Taliban. Can you talk about Azizi? Yeah, Azizi is a 20-year-old Taliban fighter from uh, Wardak, a province outside of Kabul. 
I joined the Taliban when I was 13. I used to see the Taliban with their weapons and bikes in the village bazaar, and I was inspired by that. I secretly worked for them for three and a half years. How did the U.S. occupation shape Azizi's life growing up? Tangibly, he saw the Americans in the village. They came to the village and they gave candy out to the children while they chased Taliban in the bazaar and, and tried to stamp out Taliban presence locally. And this is something that other villagers and other Taliban fighters have told me as well, that there were a lot of stories about people being arrested, taken to Bagram or other American bases where they were tortured, allegedly. And that has sort of shaped his worldview. The resistance against foreign occupation has been a pillar of his worldview since he was a child. When the Americans first came, they welcomed themselves inside our houses. They used to destroy Qur'ans, and they blew up mosques. That made people stand up against them and believe that they'd come to our country to damage Islam. We'll fight against them until they leave, even if it costs us our lives. What does he think of the drawdown? He thinks the U.S. drawdown is a great victory. This is something he told me and other Taliban fighters as well. They said that the U.S. is not withdrawing of its own free will. It's uh, withdrawing because it has to, because the Taliban forced it to capitulate. There's this saying in Afghanistan that's often attributed to the Taliban, that they say, you might have the watch, but we have the time. Meaning, we have all the patients in the world, and at some point you're going to leave. And uh, this, to many Taliban fighters, just proves that saying. What does Azizi think about Kabul and the way that Afghanistan has changed? Azizi hates Kabul. <laughs> so when I spoke to him, I spoke to him in Kabul. He came in to, for the interview. He just wanted to go back to the village. To be honest, I get stressed here. Whatever you do, at some point, you'll make a mistake. Look at all the different women, and you can't control yourself. We miss prayer time, we feel like we're losing control, and the devil is overcoming us. How does he think Kabul would be transformed? How would it look and feel different under the Taliban? To Azizi, I think uh, Kabul would be more, quote-unquote, modest. He would say that it should be less corrupt. But that means fewer women outside in the streets and the women who did go outside should be dressed in in this kind of full-body, loose garment that only leaves the face uncovered. Azizi also told Suna something else. People who have worked for the Afghan government during the U.S. occupation are valid Taliban targets— Quote, if you follow an infidel government, then you're in trouble. This is one reason why Fahim's TV station is fortified by blast walls. It's why when Suna visited Shahrazad at her office, he had to go through security screening. In the past year, hit-and-run assassinations of activists, journalists, and government officials have become common in Kabul. What do Fahim and Shahrazad think about the U.S. drawdown plan? Fahim and Shahrazad are concerned for some of the same reasons. They're both concerned that the Taliban will come back and dictate things in a way that will make their lives, their careers, the future of their families unsafe, untenable, maybe. 
uh, you know, for me, Afghanistan is my country. I'm in love with it, and I've invested a lot of money. I will continue to be here. I will try my best to be here. But if the Taliban force you to leave, then there's not much you can do. They both mentioned that if things really collapse, in worst-case scenario, they'll have to leave the country. Both of them will also want to leave, I think, if there's a big civil war, which is something I heard many times in Afghanistan. My biggest fear is civil war, the worst-case scenario. Unfortunately, right now, standing here right now, I don't see a lot of good scenarios, and that worries me every day. So my biggest fear is civil war, honestly. If the Taliban come back and take uh, or get more control in, in Kabul, will you and your family be safe, do you think? I don't know. Uh, I don't know. My parents survived a Taliban takeover. Um, I don't know if I will. So, we'll see. That's all for today, Friday, January 15th. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and the Wall Street Journal. Your hosts are Kate Leinbaugh and me, Ryan Knudsen. The show's produced by Catherine Brewer, Gerard Cole, Pia Gadkari, Annie Minoff, Afif Nasuli, Ricky Nevetsky, Enrique Perez, Sarah Platt, Willa Rubin, Annie Rostrasser, and Rob Zipko. Our engineers are Griffin Tanner and Nathan Singapak. Engineering help this week from Sam Baer. Our theme music is by So Wiley. Additional music this week from Katherine Anderson, Peter Leonard, Emma Munger, So Wiley, and Blue Dot Sessions. Fact-checking by Nicole Pasolka. Translation by Rakib Amiri. Voiceover by Afif Nasuli. We're off Monday for Martin Luther King Day. See you on Tuesday.